So today uh, marks the end of our series in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And last week we looked at that first half of chapter 3 and we answered the question, what has gone wrong? What has gone wrong with this world? Because how you answer that question will inevitably determine where you go looking to make things right. And as I noted last week, every belief system answers that question in some way. Naturalists, if they're being consistent, will say nothing's wrong because whatever exists is what is right because there is no right and wrong. So if what is is genocide, murder, rape, etc., then that's right because there is no right and there is no wrong. Conversely, we also saw that following the lead of Rousseau, many today locate the primary problem outside of the individual heart, outside of the individual self, and in society. It is the expectations that others place upon us. It is the structures of society that are the problem. If man could just rid himself of all of those expectations, he could be his truest and best self, and then everything would be fine. And it is that system that rules the day today. That is what we live in in the West. You would be just fine if you could just find your truest self and no one prevented you from living that out. If no one had expectation, oppressive expectations on you, including being a biological male or female, you could just be you. The problem is not me, but it's everyone else. And that's a tempting way to look at life and it is at the heart of so many of our problems. I want to take a pause just for a moment here uh, to say a few things. Many of you know this, but John MacArthur, the pastor at uh, Grace Church in Los Angeles, uh, founder of Grace to You Ministries and the author of many, 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 many books, and he's been the most well-known pastor who defied the tyranny of government overreach in the last two years. Uh, he has called for all faithful churches in the United States and in Canada uh, today to speak about human sexuality through the biblical worldview and religious freedom. And the reason he did this is a group of pastors reached out to him from Canada because our neighbors to the north have passed a law banning all conversion therapy. Now, we need to be careful when we talk about this because there are forms of conversion therapy that Christians most certainly oppose. Uh, The use of electric shock therapy and other crazy things that originated in really odd branches of secular psychology we have opposed and will continue to oppose. And what they won't tell you, those have been for quite some time and already are illegal. Those things don't get practiced anymore. But this law in Canada bans even talking to and encouraging people to change their sexual behavior. And so pastors, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Canada, are facing a dilemma uh, starting today. And laws like this have been tried to pass, even here in our own state of Minnesota. A few years ago, they tried to pass it, and they were one vote away uh, from passing it in Minnesota. Now, already in these these first three chapters of Genesis, you and I, we've we've covered the sexual ethic. I've beaten that horse uh, to death, so that's not going to be the primary focus of our message here today. But I did want to address this because it's real, and it's not something you should think can't happen here. It most certainly could. 
And Christianity, at its most basic sense, is all about conversion. It is all about conversion. 100%. That conversion can never be coerced. It can never be forced. But it is a call to convert. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, as he's dealing with sexual sinners, and specifically the sin of homosexual behavior, and he says to the church, and such were, past tense, such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were forgiven, and you were redeemed and saved by Christ. You are no longer those things. You have been converted. You are a new reality. And to make such conversions illegal, even if I don't believe Canada will enforce it on the church yet, to make such conversions illegal is to set yourself on the collision course, not only with Christianity, not only with the faithful church, but with God himself. This is the goal, brothers and sisters, of all progressive political movements across the globe. It is built on Rousseau, it is built on Karl Marx, and it hates Christ, and it hates his people. And let me say something to you this morning that may come as a shock, but it shouldn't, that many pastors won't say to you, but if you've been here for months, you know I'll say it anyways. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot support politicians or political movements who call the gospel evil and who will use their delegated authority that you give to them to hurt your brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot do that. To do that is to fall into sin. To do that is to betray your brothers and sisters in Christ. Such behavior is off limits. It is evil. And it is an abomination before God. It is not those like me who say that, who have made politics into an idol. It is those who will bend their Christian beliefs to their favored politics who make it an idol. Some suggest that I probably just stepped outside of what pastors should say. I understand that. But I want you to understand why I, I say this. Conversion is essential to the gospel. Ministering to the gay community involves love in the form of calling people to life and to change and to conversion. And when the state steps into that realm, they have stepped into the realm of the church. They have crossed the line they should not cross. And it is they who are doing the work of Satan and bringing people to eternal damnation. And as a shepherd, it is my job sometimes to take out a big two-by-four and start hitting wolves. And that's what I'm doing. And as a shepherd, sometimes it's my job to look at the sheep and say, no matter what anyone else says, don't go that way. Because eventually you'll, fa you'll face the choice. You'll either have to choose Jesus or not. And it's getting more and more clear every day. If you have any questions about that, you can ask one of my elders. <laughs> Let's shift gears back to, to the text today. In the second half of Genesis 3, we're going to see the fallout of the fall. Last week we focused on how sin entered the world. Today we're going to see what has been the impact. What is this rot? How has this changed? And we see that man is removed from the garden. Man has been removed from God's presence. And this sets the stage for a quest that will mark the rest of human history, that marks your history and mine. A looking for a home. 
looking for the good life, looking for a paradise somewhere in this world. In this book, in the book of Genesis, God promises a new land to Abraham. He says, here, I'm going to give you a land that will be your home, and it will be a blessed land, and I will live there with you. And later on, to the people of Israel, God will describe this land as one flowing with milk and honey. Genesis 3, I'm going to curse the ground, there's going to be thorns, there's going to be thistles. Genesis, and then in Exodus, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to roll that back a little bit. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Throughout world history, we see this search all over the place. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, he declares the glories of his kingdom. He's like, I did this, and then God drives him mad. You have the Pax Romana, the glory and the peace of Rome in its reign that ended in fire. Our forefathers fled the persecution in Europe to come to a new world, looking for a kingdom, looking for a home, someplace marked by peace. People are willing and have been throughout world history to leave their homes, their families, and risk their lives to find such a home in this world. I never thought that would be, sound so appealing to me, but it does some days. Fleeing to a better place. Longing for that far kingdom that is hardwired in us to want. So how has sin impacted this world? Let's take a look at it here in Genesis 3. First, the entrance of sin changes everything. Absolutely everything. We spent all these weeks about the goodness of creation. Now all of that gets impacted as God curses his creation. Last week we saw that God gave mercy to Adam and Eve by killing the animals and covering their shame and their sin. And this week we get the other side of the equation. God judges. We must note that it is not sin all by itself that inherently broke everything. God responds to sin by cursing creation, the serpent, the woman, and the man. The brokenness of this world, that entropy that reigns, are God's judgment upon sin. The wages of sin is death, and that payment is due to God, and it hangs over all of creation. To put it most plainly here, God is sovereign, sin isn't. Sin doesn't reign over this world, God does. He is in charge, and he is expressing his holy and righteous judgment over this world through the curse. And that's what we have here in Genesis 3. And this reminds us, these, these mercy in the judgment here, of the two fates for all of us. That's set before all of us. You will either be an object of God's wrath and judgment, or an object of his mercy and his grace. There is no middle ground here. There's no third way. And both options reflect the glorious truths about the nature and the character of God. It's not like just the mercy reflects the goodness of God and the judgment doesn't. Both of them do. Both of them reflect who he is. For our God is righteous. He is just. He is holy. To judge the wicked, to punish the murderer, the tyrant, the liar, and the cheater is inherently good. We all hate in this world when the guilty go free when they burn down your cities and they don't even attempt to prosecute. We hate it. When the wicked go free, 
We say that's an injustice, that's not good. And so God will execute his justice. And this brings him glory. Secondly, he, or we, sorry, can become objects of his grace and mercy. And this too shows us the glory of God. We all know the sweetness, the joy of having our own sins forgiven from somebody we know and we love. We know the, or the, um, the sweetness of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. We've, we've been there. You felt that pit in your stomach when you were wrong and then your spouse forgives you and things slowly go back to normal. How much more is it with God? And so this is the choice we face, wrath or grace. God places it before you. We either bend the knee to Christ and receive his mercy or we will receive the wrath, or the wrath of God. And so God judges his creation here at the beginning. And the first part he judges is the serpent. He turns to the serpent and he curses him. He says this, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot of figurative language in this judging of the serpent. For example, it says the serpent will, will eat dust. If you know anything about snakes, you know that they don't actually eat dirt. Right? That's not what they do. But this saying is more akin to if somebody was laying on the ground and you were playing an activity with them, they fell over and they laid in the ground, and you would tell them, eat dirt. Right? This is humiliating. God is humiliating the serpent as he crawls around on his belly and eats the dust of the ground. But the heart of the curse is not aimed at serpents, but at the serpent, Satan. The, uh, there will be strife and war between that serpent, his offspring, and the offspring of the woman. Now, who are the offspring of the serpent? How should we understand that? It's not primary, primarily a physical birth. And even for the woman, it's not primarily a physical birth. It's about a spiritual condition. To put it plainly, Abel is of the offspring of the woman, spiritually. Cain, even though he physically came from the woman, is of the offspring of the serpent. Abraham is of the offspring of the woman. Faithful Israel is, and so is the church. But the world outside of faith in God is of the offspring of the serpent. And the conflict at the center of human history, and on every page of Scripture, is this war that rages between the descendants of the serpent and the descendants of the woman. We see it pictured most clearly in Revelation chapter 12. We read of the great serpent, the dragon, and there he is waiting for this promised son to be born with his mouth wide open so that he can devour him. But as the child is born and he escapes and this dragon turns his attention to the children of the, woman, of the woman. Who are these children? It's the church in Revelation that he then pursues and tries to devour. And for this reason, John the Baptist, as he's preaching to the crowds, there's all these Jews coming out to him, right? and he says, don't you think that you're sons of Abraham? God can bring sons of Abraham out of these stones. You are a brood of vipers. What is a brood of vipers? You're children of the serpent. 
And that's not a kind thing to say to a bunch of Jews. Jesus does the same thing in John 8. He has this back and forth with the Jews of his day, and they keep saying, we're sons of Abraham, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not, because if you were, you would worship me, you would love me. You are sons of the devil. And so they tried to kill him. And so this age after the garden is marked by this conflict between the people of God, who are redeemed out of the people of the serpent, by grace through faith, at war with those who remain spiritually under the serpent. This is the cosmic war that is mentioned here in Genesis 3. And you're living it. You're living it right now. Next, God curses the woman. He says to her, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So remember Genesis chapter 2, there is, as God looks out here with Adam, they're looking for a suitable helper, a fit helper for Adam, and it's the first not good thing of creation. So God makes the woman to be that suitable helper, and there's all this joy at the end of chapter 2. And in that very focus in Genesis 2 of why he made the woman, it is those areas that God curses here in chapter 3. God cursed her in bearing of children, and he cursed her that she would have a desire to rule over her husband, but that he will rule over her. Now this doesn't mean, as some will argue, that the leadership of the man over his house is a post-fall reality. First Timothy chapter 2 tells us that it's actually a creational reality, but the issue here is this relationship that was supposed to be a blessing is now cursed. It now has strife. Now her desire to rule her husband has been introduced. And instead, he will rule her, and I think it's implied harshly in response. And this is not how it should be. Leadership should be a blessing. Marriage should be a great blessing. Children should be a great blessing. But here, they are cursed. That doesn't mean all the blessing is removed, but it means there is something new in creation. And what we find here in this realm of life is where we see the greatest and deepest hurts. It's where things go wrong, and when they go wrong, it goes terribly wrong. And we see the heart of so much of our marital conflict. Women who let sin reign try to reign over their husbands. They become unbearable. The stereotype of the nag and the dripping faucet, as Proverbs puts it. And the husband who just withdraws and becomes that passive video game playing loser who has no part in the marriage and the raising of their children. And as she desires this reign, no one dares cross her because she will rule with guilt and coercion and manipulation and throwing tantrums. Many a weak-willed man acquiesces to this behavior to try to keep the peace, but it only makes it worse. Women need to rule over their sin, not over their husbands. That is what Genesis wants us to see. That doesn't mean never speaking up or anything like that, but it does mean rule over your sin, then act. And then there is the man who is to lead his wife, but he responds often, with his own sinful brand of tyranny in the home. 
He says, you must obey me. Husband, if you ever have to say to your wife, you must obey me, you've already lost. That's not how to lead. So he coerces and bullies and demeans. And this too is sinful. And sin is reigning over the husband instead of the husband reigning over his sin. Leadership, wherever it is, church, government, or home, really does mean leading. But it does not mean making people conform to your image. Your job as a husband is to help your wife and children to conform not to your image, but to the image of Christ. Leadership is about making tough decisions for the good of those you lead, not of yourself. And finally, God curses the man. And in doing so, he curses creation. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God turns to the man, and he immediately curses his primary sphere of influence. God created the man and said, work and keep the garden, work the ground. And God curses where Adam is supposed to be at his best, making his job more difficult. And so creation itself is put in a trap because of the sin of man. Romans 8 says it groans and it waits to be free from the influence of sin. So we all experience the law of entropy. Everything decays and breaks down. All of life is breath. You get older and you wake up in the morning and it hurts more. Every year, a little bit more, you're a little bit more sore. We all reside under that curse. Work is hard. You plant fruit and instead you get thorns and you get thistles. You've all experienced it, even though you're not all farmers. You studied hard for that test and you failed. You invested in that surefire investment and you didn't get the return you thought you would get. You worked and worked on that home improvement project. You went to Menard 16 times and you still didn't fix it, so you had to call someone else in. The examples could go on and on and on. There's frustration now in our work. And you feel it after a long week of work and you feel it when you return on Monday morning. Like, oh, I don't want to do this again. And so we strive and we sweat because of sin and the curse. Just to top it off, God says, I promise at the end of this, you get to return to dust, to the ground that is cursing you as you work it. And you'll be cut off from the tree of life and from God himself. And so as bad as the curse is, that last part is really the worst part. God removes man from his presence. This is how the chapter concludes. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God sends man out says get out he exiles him from the garden 
And he places an angel there so that no man can ever find his way back in. And so humanity sets there, sets off with Adam and Eve on a futile journey of looking for a new paradise, looking for what was lost, looking for a new home. And it is ingrained in each and every one of our hearts. I don't know how you define the good life. I don't know what you think would make your life so much better. But it's a, it's a dim reflection of what you see here. What was lost in the fall. And you can take all the might of man. You can muster all of his forces, all the strength of his will, all of his intelligence, and you can't get your way back into that garden. There's no political solution. There's no edu- educational solution. Science can't overcome this exile. Money won't do it. Popularity won't do it. None of it will work. And yet the desire remains. The truth of the matter is, God made man to be in a right relationship with him. And only then will the peace be restored. And yet God leaves that longing in your heart so that it can be a bullhorn saying, these don't work. You need something more. And the pain and the suffering you experience are meant to continually point your hearts and your minds back to something's amiss. I need something different. As good as this creation remains under the curse, the goodness we experience, we still have that bullhorn in our hearts saying, there's got to be more. There's got to be something that actually satisfies. And so God though remains merciful to man. And throughout Scripture, he starts to roll back that exile and roll back that curse every now and again. With Abraham, God promises to be his God, to be with him, and to give him a land of blessing. He says, and in that land I will dwell with your descendants. And so as Israel is is enslaved in Egypt, God sends Moses to Pharaoh to say this, let my people go into the wilderness so that they can worship me, so that I can be with them. And of course, Pharaoh says no. And God sends plague after plague after plague. And finally, Israel is free, and God himself leads them out as a pillar of smoke and fire. And there he meets them at Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. It's like Adam and Eve. Here's your rules. Here's the law. And then he dwells with them by establishing a tabernacle in the midst of the camp. But even this tabernacle, it's a limited restoration. It's both like the garden and unlike it. If you look at the imagery, it's very garden-like. There's even a cherubim guarding the entrance to the most holy place. The people were allowed into the court, the priests a little further in, and the high priest only once a year. And so God allows a limited dwelling with his people again. But then this tabernacle, when Israel falls into sin, leaves. It leaves. And God exiles the people again until David is king and he brings the tabernacle back to Jerusalem. And then Solomon builds a temple to replace that tabernacle. And God's spirit visibly descends upon the temple, saying that God is living with his people again, in his land again, but again, very limited. As only one person, once a year, gets to be in God's presence. And the most terrifying part of the exile that would come because of Israel's sin 
is that Ezekiel the prophet looks and he sees and God's spirit removes itself from the temple. He says, no more. I'm not going to live with you. And just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of, the, out of Eden, Israel was kicked out of the promised land. And upon their return, they come out of exile. And in Haggai, they rebuild the temple. But the people weep. Why do they weep? Well, the temple's not very nice anymore. And unlike with Solomon building the temple, there's no mention that God's glory comes down upon it again. And so there's this longing and this waiting for a greater glory. In fact, there's a promise that that temple's glory will be greater than the first temple's. How? Well, that's where John 1 comes in. The Word becomes flesh and dwells with them, or tabernacles with the people. And in John 2, Jesus says, tear down this temple. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He says, tear it down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Like, what are you talking about? You can't do that. Because the temple is ultimately about Jesus. He says, I'm the temple. I'm dwelling with man. The temple is not something we have to long for to be restored. Jesus is the temple. He says, tear it down, and I will build it up again in three days. And so he dies. He gives up his spirit to the Father, and the veil in the temple is ripped from top to bottom into two. And there's really two things going on there. God's opening a way for him to dwell with his people again, but it's also a judgment upon that temple. It's saying this temple is now obsolete. And Christ rises again on the third day, and he ascends to the right hand of his Father so that he can send his spirit to dwell with his people. All throughout the New Testament then, the church is called the temple of God. It is here that God restores, in part, living with his people. And all of this is but a glimpse. Because at the end of it all, we get a full circle restart. The end of Revelation, the temple in heaven, the real temple, descends upon earth and God's dwelling is with man again. And there's a way opened again to eat of the tree of life. Eden returns with God and is made permanent through Christ. And that's the good news. The longing God has left in us is meant to be satisfied. And it will be. And it comes through the snake crusher. We turn to Genesis 3.15. The very last part, there's a promise given in the midst of the curse that from the line of the woman will come an offspring and he will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. God promises a defeat. He says, you don't win, Satan. Creation is not yours. Humanity is not yours. I promise from this day forward, someone is coming. And he will crush your head. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have these great figures introduced. And it's like the Old Testament is putting them up to say, is this it? Right? Is it Abraham? Is it Noah? Is it Moses? Is it Joshua? Is it David? And they all fail. Sometimes you go, what? We have such a hard time looking at our Old Testament heroes and go, why did they fail? That's the point. They were supposed to fail. They're not the snake crusher. And so we learn that they will come, he will come through the line of Abraham and the line of David. 
And you know him, and I know him to be Christ. And this snake crusher will kill the serpent, but in the process of crushing his head, the serpent will wound him. And that's exactly what we have on the cross. Jesus gives himself up. The serpent thinks he's going to win. He wounds the snake crusher, but in the process, Christ wins. As others have commented, the whole story of the Bible can be summarized as this. Kill the dragon and get the girl. Kill the dragon and get the girl. Christ kills the serpent to save his bride, the church. And that story, kill the dragon and get the girl, is retold a million times throughout human history. We find it entertaining because it reflects a true story. The story of the universe. The valiant knight slays the beast to save the damsel in distress. That's not toxic masculinity. That's the gospel. That's what Christ came to do. And so he is the one who crushes the head and slays the father of dragons. And we are to emulate him. I'm raising three boys. I teach them to kill dragons. Not because they kill them by their own strength, but because they are to mimic their Savior. We win because Christ came. He died in our place and he rose again in victory. And he alone opens the door to paradise. And he does it through his death, resurrection, ascension, and return. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that even in the midst of the curse, even in the midst of our sin, you give us promises. You give us hope. And our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. That he has defeated the serpent. That he is returning and that he will establish a, a forever Eden in this earth. That heaven will descend, that death will be no more, that sin will be no more, and that we will be like Christ in our resurrected bodies. O Lord, hasten that day. Come quickly. Save your people and establish your kingdom forever. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.